Hey, Senda. Hey, Phil. I got this new setting that we're going to play a game in. But like before we start, I think I got to sit you down for like, I don't know, four, maybe six hours of, of setting stuff. Uh, are you good with that? <laughs> um, How long? <laughs> I, I don't know, like four to six hours. Is that too much? You're, you're looking like it's too much. I think it's too much. Oh, maybe we should figure out a better way to introduce the setting. Cue music. And welcome to another fine episode of Pandas Talking Games. I'm one of your hosts, Phil. And I am your other host, Senda. And for today's topic, we have a question from Tiffany, um, who sent us an email, I believe, although this is a, a little old, so I don't remember exactly how it came in, with a fantastic picture of a an adorable panda on it, which, as we know, is a great way to bribe us. Uh, but anyway, we're going to talk about this question today. So Tiffany said, hi, Rolly Pandas, a spin on an old topic. We often talk about introducing players to new games. I was running a Forgotten Realms campaign with several newbies. Um, I told them a bit about the setting, but they had more fun as I hacked many of the campaign books, moving them around the realms and the planes. They got a little taste of the D&D tropes, people, types of adventures, and lore. How do you introduce players to new settings, both IPs or your own? And then you can split this up or ping pong it or whatever pandas find is fun. Well, we're just going to sit down and have a conversation about it. Yeah. Um, so thing is, right, uh, for full disclosure, I am st still not feeling 100%. And um, because of that, I um, just haven't had the spoons to uh, prep episodes. I have enough spoons to do an episode, just not enough spoons to prep one. Uh, so we're going to do this in the way of a conversation. And we're just going to kind of refer to um, Tiffany's question and kind of break it up into pieces. So I guess off the top of my head to start, um, let's talk a little bit about setting um, the role of setting in the game. And um, we'll throw out a couple of terms like shared imagine shared narrative space and things yeah. like that. Cool. Right. Yeah. So um, all games exist within a setting of some sort. Um, your setting as Tiffany um, alluded to can come from a couple of places. Right. Um, but let's be a hundred percent clear. All settings are made up. Yes. Right? <laughs> Published settings are just made up by people that you pay money to and homebrew settings are settings you make up yourself. They're all just made up. Um, none of them are better than others, right? There are people who are very good at world building who make very interesting um, and um, knowledgeable settings, but that is true on whether it's published or not. And I just want to slide right in here just because I feel like it's the the point that someone might walk up to you with, which is, yes, even if you are playing in a modern day current setting, the moment you're doing it as a, as a game with people and imagining what might happen there, it is still different from the reality that we actually live in. And therefore, it is still a made up 100%. setting. It's still right? a setting, correct. Still a setting. Yep. Okay. Um. So... When we get into settings, there are I'm gonna I'm gonna break them into um, I'm gonna break them into three three ish categories, right? 
like so three-ish. Three-ish categories. I may yeah. elaborate on these categories, but I'm sure. thinking off the top of my head and here's what I have so far. All right. So the first one is the setting was specifically made for a role-playing game. Yeah. Right. So um, the setting for Brindlewood Bay, right, mm-hmm. is made for Brindlewood Bay. Now, it is in it is influenced by other media sources for sure. Um, but that setting is made um, for that game. Forgotten Realms is a setting that was made for D&D. In fact, it yeah. was Ed Greenwood's D&D like campaign world yeah. made, you know, into a product. OK. Yeah. Then there are settings that are based on other intellectual properties, right? So if you are playing the Star Trek role-playing game, or even if you're playing your own game in the Star Trek universe, that setting is an intellectual property that exists in other forms of media. Now, the Forgotten Realms also exists in other forms of media, but it started as a role-playing product and then actually um, crossed over to movies and um, books and books so and stuff many, like that. Many yeah. books. Yeah. I have read a shocking number of them. Correct. Now, so sometimes, so sometimes an IP um, crosses out into the world, and other times an IP goes from the external world and crosses into role playing games. Right? Star yes. Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, yeah. Firefly. Right? They come into yes. our world. The thing is, with all crossovers, there are some translation errors that yeah. occur, right? It's not a, that's not our goal of talking about it today. But when you bring in a Star Trek game into a role-playing, from, from a TV show into a role-playing game, it doesn't quite play like the TV show. I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had there. And I, I agree with you, maybe not today. Correct. As part it's, of this. It's, it's, it's not our, it's a total rabbit hole, but, but just to call it out, I think, um, whoever does the translation from like a movie or TV show media into role-playing, um, based on what they decide is the important thing that makes it feel like that that setting, they will make decisions which may not agree with your personal experience of that IP, right? Yeah. And then to you, it doesn't feel like Star Trek or whatever it is because they focused on something else. Correct. Right? It's really, it's an interesting Hence conundrum. my same feeling about the Star Trek Kelvin uh, timeline movies, uh, like the Chris Pine ones. They yeah. are Star Trek, but they're not exactly like a DS9 or TNG or right. something like that. Right. They're more actiony and stuff like that. And I've learned over the years to love both of them equally. Sure. I did not start that way. Okay, anyway, <laughs> to get back on track with yeah. settings. Um, and then there are homebrew settings, right? These are settings you make up yourself. Um, they can be crossovers from IPs. They could be your own original ideas. Um, I myself have had many homebrew uh, settings, Um, some of them very simple, some of them very elaborate. Um, I am a big fan of homebrew settings. I'm not opposed to uh, published settings, but I like, I do like world building myself. So I, I actually find it quite enjoyable to do that, to do that work, but you may not. Okay. The role of settings. So we're playing in a game where we're essentially creating a, creating a story through play. We need a setting, right? We need our, we need our characters to be somewhere. We need this world to be something, right? Yeah, we have to, we have to be working with the shared assumptions 
Well, right. now we're getting into, right. I know. We're getting into what setting let does, me, which is. Let me which, lead you in. <laughs> thank you. Which builds what we, uh, we here on the Misdirected Mark um, network call the shared narrative space, right? Shared narrative space is um, our collective, and I say our GM players included, our collective understanding of the world as it exists, right? You know, it can be on a micro level. It can be the layout of a room, right? We all believe, we all can see in our mind's eye, right? In the shared narrative space, we can see that the door is on the Western wall of the room. On a macro scale, we all understand that Spock um, is, you know, and, you know, depending on where you are in the timeline, but Spock is a Starfleet officer, an ambassador, whatever, right? Like there are, you know, levels of this, right? Yeah. There's granularity. Okay. Yeah. What the shared narrative space does for us, and there's a whole misdirected Mark episode in the archives about this, but shared narrative space allows us to all tell the same story. Yeah. Right. So shared narrative space is really important because if we all perceive the world differently, our characters will behave differently based on our perceptions and weird shit can happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> like, re- like really weird shit can happen when we don't understand that. And at some time you have all as players encountered a, a moment where not all of you are in the same narrative, same shared narrative space. 100%. Okay. Right. All right. Go ahead. F- frequently in combat. I feel like the easiest example of this is when you're in combat. Yes. Right. And you're like, awesome. I'm going to swing my sword at this guy. And then the GM says, well, he's like 10 feet away. Are you going to step into that square? And you go, he's 10 feet away. I thought he was, you know, adjacent to me. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That is a gap in shared narrative space. And that's a minor one because you can touch it up really quickly. Oh, yeah. You can fix it really quickly. But I think that that's like the kind of thing, especially when you talk about theater of the mind, like combat stuff with a system that is a little bit more combat focused. I think all of us have experienced something along those lines at some point or like the, yeah, I'm going to walk over to the fountain and take a drink. Well, the fountain's not running. Like there's no water in it. Oh, or I the, missed that. That water's right? poisonous. Like, right. Like you yeah. can see the algae growing in it. Why would you drink that? Right. Like, yeah. Okay. So shared narrative space is the important piece here. So setting needs to setting is there to help build the shared narrative space. Right. And this is why a lot of us like IP settings because um, we all understand a good portion of the IP and it is a shortcut into creating that shared narrative space. Okay, that is the end goal, right? Is how do we build and maintain a cohesive shared narrative space? So now we can back up to Tiffany's question, which is how do we introduce settings? Because a setting is a component of the shared narrative space. How do we introduce settings in a way that um, we are building towards a more cohesive shared narrative space and not a disjointed one. Yeah. Okay. And I think um, with the extra challenge of like walking into maybe a, a, a setting that is potentially deep, like yes. Forgotten Realms, right? Right. And people who do not have any experience with that Correct. as a property. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you just touched on a really good thing, right? So the first um, barometer, the first gauge we need to look at is how familiar is the entire group, right, with the setting? 
Now, yes. it will vary, right? It, first of all, it'll vary person by person, but it will also vary depending on the setting, right? Because if we're talking about an external IP, right, there's a good chance that many people might be familiar at some level with a, an IP, right? If I was to sit down um, now with a bunch of um, misdirected mark folk and do a Star Trek game, having <laughs> taken you all through Star Trek college in uh, during the pandemic, we we I could assume that you all have a very um, you have a very base understanding of the Federation, the Romulans, the Klingons, whatever. Some of you will have more information. Some of you will have less information. But if I said Vulcan, you would all be like, right. We Vulcan. know what a Vulcan Got is. It. Yes. We yeah. all have a, a certain level of shared understanding because you taught us. <laughs> exactly. Now, when we talk about when we talk about settings that are specifically published for role-playing games, um, again, those settings can be very complicated, very deep, very voluminous. Um, they, the knowledge, the number of people who possess that knowledge is now smaller. Yes. Right. Um, and some of it, depending on the setting, will be a function of time, right? So yes. there are some old folk like me who remembers when the Forgotten Realms came out as a box set, yeah. right? And have like, and have been in this, and have been in this setting since the Crystal, what is it? Um, crystal Shard? The uh, Crystal Shard. Book. Is that the, the one that you're I think thinking that's of? Like the, I'm, I think that's one of the first books. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the Drizzt. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's like one right? of the first ones because I yeah. remember buying it at Walden Books as a kid. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So some people have been in the Forgotten Realms for 30 plus years. Some people picked it up when they started their 5e game, right? So there's there's different depths of knowledge there. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, um, if you have a homebrew, chances are unless you did a bunch of collaborative world building together. And even if you did, at some point, the GM has to go do some extra stuff on their own. There's far less information, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's, and there's also far less information available for character players. Correct. Not characters, players to have known in advance. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So our first kind of gauge that we have to look at is, um, what is the general familiarity of the group with this setting, right? And again, we just talked about the ways it would differ. It would differ. The next one, which is just what you were touching on, is how deep is the information for this setting, right? So going back to like Star Trek or Star Wars, there are whole wikis, yeah. right, dedicated to those, um, to both of those settings, right? There is memory, what is it, memory core alpha mm -hmm. and Wikipedia. Yeah. I, I think or it's like, Memory Core Alpha. Somebody's going to yell at me. I'm, I'm going to throw out another one, right? Like um, Lord of the Rings. I am a fan of the Lord of the Rings. Um, I consider myself to know it pretty well. Um, I get intimidated to play the Lord of the Rings game potentially with people who know all the lore better than I do because there are so many books and there is so much lore you could know. Memory right? Alpha. That's it. Memory Alpha. 
But as we have talked about in previous episodes also, like I have ADHD and I don't retain all of that stuff, even if I consume all the information, which I have, but like it doesn't stick. Well, let's go one back on that. I don't remember. So (laughs) for Lord of the Rings, you know vastly more than I do. I have actually never finished the books. I have only watched all the movies. Right. And I have feelings about the movies, um, but we won't Which go into that. We're either. not even we're not even sharing <laughs> the same setting completely. Right. We actually aren't, which is a, right. a whole different thing. That's kind of wild. Yeah. What's really interesting is we have a very shared sense visually of what mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings looks like. What we don't necessarily share is some of the details of how people and places function. Correct. New Zealand is what Lord of the yeah, Rings New looks New Zealand like. is what the yes. Lord of the Rings looks like. That's Correct. true. Yes. Um, okay. So how, so the, so that, so the <laughs> second gauge is how voluminous is the information for the setting, right? Yes. Um, and then as a, as a kind of subsection of that is how accessible is this knowledge, right? So yes. like for, for um, memory alpha or Wikipedia, um, it is voluminous and it is very easily accessible online searchable even yes um i would say lord of the rings i'm sure there's a wiki out there somewhere i don't know what it is but then you get into like bullshit like um what's that last book the one that starts with an s i can never pronounce it correctly silmarillion yeah that thing is like full of all those that's that's what i'm saying it's full book but right like all of that that weird bullshit information right yeah it's just lore well that's it it's full of setting right it's yeah it's the setting as yes. a paperback book, but but that's leaving aside the appendices in the back of every one of the actual yes. Lord of the Rings books, right? Which are each like 50 to 100 pages, depending on the print size and have things in them like the entire genealogy of the Shire back 200 years. I'm going to say, some, like, <laughs> I'm gonna say something super inflammatory. People okay. are going to people are going to get mad on the show. Like okay. on the show. <laughs> My bet is that Tolkien would have been an insufferable fucking GM to oh, play I with. Oh, I think he would have been terrible. <laughs> I think he'd have been awful. Right. I, yeah. I think, I think like, I think for the tips that we're about to give, <laughs> I am betting he would break every fucking one of them. Right. Like well, just, we have to remember, and this is a thing that I sometimes go back to. Um, we have to remember Tolkien was a linguist and what he was actually interested in was the creation and existence and evolution of languages. So he wrote a fantasy realm in which he could have a lot of different languages and a lot of different lore that he could experience that with. He didn't write it for the purpose of like. (laughs) But let's be clear, dialect is a much better game if you want to play that. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like it was an exercise for him, right? Like, well, it is a. A difficult it's his language heartbreaker. To, it's yes. his language heartbreaker, yeah, right? But Linguistic no one had ever done it before, so he gets to get away with it. Yeah. Don't get me okay. wrong. I love the Lord of the Rings. All right. I'm, all right. Backing off. No, Moving right no more along. hate. No more hate on, on Tolkien. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So, so this next, all right. So now as we go down the line, we get to how accessible is Forgotten Realms information? Pretty accessible. How accessible are other RPG settings. Now, then it gets to be less accessible. Like we're now talking about setting books or what's in the main game. Like how much information is there for um, uh, Tales from the Loop? Well, there's an art book and there's the role playing game. Right. And that's that's it. it. That's all you got. Um, How much. And then we get down to the last bit, which is how much setting information is there, for instance, for our um, for the queen game? Well, 
there's a Google Doc. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, there, there was an inspirational short story and there's a Google Doc. Yes. And like that's, and that's it. Okay. So um, how much information and how accessible is it, right? That's your next gauge. Um, and so those together start to inform you of how much work you have to do in order to convey setting, right? So if a setting is ubiquitous where everybody knows something about it and it's easily accessible, then the amount of work you have to do to get to a base level understanding is pretty light. If I need my nerds to play a Star Trek game and I need you to just know roughly the TNG Deep Space Nine Alpha Quadrant um, era, pretty reliably, I can get you guys into that game. Yeah. We got we got some Vulcans, bad guy Romulans, uh-oh, the Borg, right? Yeah. Some of those uh, things. I mean, uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, the Borg, right? No problem. Sure. Um, likewise, if I take a group of experienced role players and I'm like, hey, we're playing in the Forgotten Realms, like now, like a number of people will be like, Okay, I totally like I've played a bunch of Forgotten Realms games. That's before. That's great. And some people will be like, "Mm, I'm familiar with it because I've been in this hobby. I don't know too much about it, but it's fantasy. I'll, you know, I I think, you know, I'll get I'll get by. Yeah. And then you get me where it's like I consumed a lot of this in my teenage years and I've forgotten 95 percent of it, but I still know who Elminster is. So, yeah, like, we're exactly. cool. right. You, you know, a couple of key key players, a couple of <laughs> like, you've heard a couple of of city names. You're like, OK, yeah, like, oh, I'll yeah, catch that up. name. Yeah, right. well, it's fine. I figure and it then, out. And then on the far end, it's like, hey, Senda, we're going to play this game called Long Live the Queen about this time traveling corporation that's coming to strip mine. Um, a branch My of time, timeline, right? Yes. And then it's like, by the way, I've got like about six pages for you to read and that's all I've got so far. Yep. Right. Okay. So how do we then, how do we build up our knowledge of the setting so that we can maintain and foster our shared narrative space? Right. This is, let's talk about some, some techniques. Um, Do you have an initial idea or do you want me to throw something out? Yeah, I think the thing that I wanted to call out first, because I don't think we've said it explicitly yet, um, is that the the deeper a setting is, like when you have 30 years of Forgotten Realms content, um, the... it, it's going to be hard to shove 30 years of content into someone's brain, right? Well, like thank that's you. Part one, right? So that's, I think from my perspective, and I might be stealing the words out of your mouth, so I'm going to say it. We'll see. Um, from my perspective, the first thing that you have to do as the person who is introducing the setting is narrow down and understand which parts of this setting are actually important to the story that you're going to tell. Because right. you're not going to take... 30 years of information and stuff it in someone's ear and like make it stick. Right. Well, you are pretty close to where I wanted to get to. So thank you. Go Um, off of that. No, it's good. My first tip was going to be do not hit them with the fire hose. Yes. No. (laughs) Right. right? Like it's too much. (laughs) Correct. So what I think as a, as a GM and, and and your part of your role as a GM is to be the ambassador to the setting, right? You are the travel guide to the setting. Um, part of that has to be um, how much knowledge do players need to know in order to 
effectively play this game. And then let me pause that because there's a caveat to it at this moment in time. Yes, right now. Okay. Here's, yes. here's where most people um, who make mistakes at this, here's where they make the mistake. They answer the first question, how much information do you need to know to play this this um, this game? But they don't take into consideration at this time, right? So what they do is they're like, okay, well, I need to tell you about the setting and I need to tell you about like all the major power players and, you know, I need to tell you about all these cities and this continent and blah, blah, blah. But the first game takes place like in a cave next to a town. Yeah. Right? Don't and, care. <laughs> and how much the players needed to know in order to go into the cave and get some treasure is a fraction of what they'll need to know before the campaign's done. Yes. Right? Yes. So that first technique is how much do you need to know in order to play the game in this moment, right? And this goes to the kind of fractal nature of telling stories, right? When we open a campaign, our suggestion has always been to open the campaign small. Yeah. Right? You have a, you're in a town, you're in, even if you're in a city, you are in a like neighborhood or, you know, section of the city, um, that kind of thing. So what you want to do is you don't want to turn the fire hose on them. I just watched a, um, just as an aside, I was sure. watching some Twilight, um, Twilight 2000 actual plays and, um, it just the intro was like it was it was very it was very cinematic and I appreciate the cinematic part but I also was like you should let the players talk soon <laughs> like, <laughs> like how long has it yes. been looking at my watch yeah here? I'm like I'm like I'm like I get what you're narrating here and I like it it's very cinematic I like you're doing a good job of conveying theme and grittiness but also there were a couple times where you could have paused and let the players actually speak Do something and speak. then keep going yeah yeah um <laughs> but that's but that's the fire hose right if you've ever seen a gm that has tried to shove too much setting at once this is what happens is that you start the game and then for 10 minutes the gm is just telling you about the world right yeah or longer or longer right so what you've got to think as a gm how much of my setting do people need to know in order to get this game started right now, I um, have a pretty good example of this in Hydro Hackers. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because also uh, we could also talk about one shots a little bit differently because there's maybe less required information or you can narrow it down. But we'll come Even back more. to that. No, no, 100 percent. Right? right. Yeah. So for Hydro Hackers, I need to take a homebrew setting that almost no one has familiarity with. Yes. Right? It doesn't even conform. It, it barely conforms to existing tropes. Yes. Right? And I need <laughs> you to be able to play it. And in a one shot, I need you to be able to do it in less than four hours. Yep. So I have like a little script that I that I put together that conveys the most basic of information about the setting. Yeah. Right. And I'm not going to like run through it, but here, but like I actually workshopped it a little to get it down to 
um, something that during character creation I could explain to everybody. Yeah, you basically need to know this is why you're doing what you're doing. These are the people who can kill you. And this is why it's dangerous. And this is where you live. Yeah. Right. Not not the rest of the world. Yeah. Not any. This is where you live right now. Yes. The water authority is an ever present danger uh, and you need water. Yeah. And they have guns and you don't. Correct. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, OK. If they show up, they will kill you. Yes. OK. So consider this is going back to this tip before we move on. Right. Is how much information do you need to convey to the players in the story that you're going to tell in order to play the game? OK, that's my first tip. I, um, which was started off by you, which I think is great. If you don't <laughs> mind, I have one. I have another Keep tip. Keep going. Yep. Okay. This one will be for my millennial folk. Um, oh boy. If you are a, if you are a Gen Z or younger, you're going to need to go to YouTube to look this up. Um, this is what I call the pop-up videos technique. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Bloop>. <laughs> yeah. The, but this is my point, right? So <laughs> you don't have to front load setting information. You can from time to time as the GM, as the travel guide that is traveling with the players, you can point out interesting things to the players, right? Yeah. So you can just in the middle of a scene pop in and say, oh, by the way, the dwarves of this clan are known for making the best ale. Yeah. Right? You didn't need to, you don't need to set that up at like, you know, a half hour ago at the start of the game. They're just, they wander in this tavern and somebody's like, get me your best ale. And you're like, Bunk, by the way, you know, and you can add those tidbits in. Right. This is a thing I know I will do to an unbelievable amount when I run Star Trek. Yeah. Right, because I will just be reminding people of like, yeah. oh, remember the exocomps were those little machines from the TNG episode that Data like, you know, helped, you know, um, get their, you know, sentience recognized, you know, that kind of thing. Um, oh, the Dominion, right? They're from the Gamma Quadrant, right? Like, remember the Jem'Hadar addicted to, you know, catch yourself white. white. There yes. we go. <laughs> yeah, see? But perfect, right? Okay. Yeah. So it never hurts to do pop-up video. And um, so as a GM, it's great to do pop-up video. As a player, it is also okay to do pop-up video as long as you're like not interrupting the GM trying to keep the flow of the game, Yeah. right? Like, like let the GM be the main pop-up video, but it definitely does not hurt if players want to also be pop-up video as well. Yeah, I think the only caveat that I personally want to put on that is um, I don't find it very effective either as a GM or as a player on the receiving end for the pop up video to be um, you're, you know, you're in the middle of confronting this very powerful character. Oh, yeah, that's Elminster and you should care now, like to suddenly spring that like if you're building up to something, you shouldn't announce like Agreed. explain why you should care about it when you hit it, right? We should right. know, we should be building up to caring about it, right? So this so is- that this is, is the caveat. Right, this is the difference of, does this information need to go into the um, early explanation? Yes. Or does, or can this be a pop-up? Or can and, it be fed to the players, um, you know, during the first adventures so that by the time they get there, because it may not need to be, it, it's maybe not something they care about to get started in the cave around the corner from the village, right? Well, I mean, be they part three, right? 
Yes, right? they- but it means that, you know, maybe while they're in the village, people are talking about Elminster and they're like, oh man, you haven't heard of him? He is like a really big deal, right? So that now three stories down, now we know why we should care. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, good. So that that's my other technique. Um, I Do you have one or I'll, I have another one in mind? It's okay. You can keep going if you want. I mean, part of the interesting thing for me, and this is, I did want to squeak this in, and it might be a, a right-hand turn, a sharp turn from where we've been. So um, we can swing back around if we need to. I also think that there's a pretty big difference between introducing setting material for a one-shot versus introducing setting material for a campaign. And I think the difference is what we were actually just talking about where um, in a one-shot, I actually need to introduce everything you need to play the game right now um, with the possibility of doing pop-ups through the game or introducing things through the game, but understanding that that's a very short amount of time comparatively, right? So I have to front load some of that. And I have to be very um, specific and um, picky about the things that I decide are important because they will shape my player's experience of the game, right? Pretty drastically. Versus in a campaign, you really can decide what do they need to know for this part of the game right now. And then you can, you know pipe knowledge in in game both through pop-ups and through actual in setting play and interaction interactions with npcs and stuff right or by handing them a map and now there's a bunch of cities on it right they they didn't need to know about those cities but now they have a map in front of them that has all those cities on it right um they could go research information about them figure out where they need to go etc but like you don't need to tell them all those cities when they start but in a campaign you have a lot of opportunities to build um in character ways to learn setting material versus I think in a one shot you really are thinking about front loading and then pop-ups and you you don't have a lot of time to um build deeper shared narrative space so you gotta kind of like really hone in on the important stuff get it out there as fast as you can and then um just kind of assist everybody in being in that shared narrative space yeah I would I would even go further to say that in a one shot, um, even for an established IP, you don't actually you you need to use less less setting. Yes. Right. Like you just yeah. the setting doesn't need to be a huge component of the um, of that adventure. Right. If you're doing a campaign, then the setting is also like its own character. Right. Yes. That you give yeah. character growth to development description and things like that. But if you're doing a one shot, I need you to know the bare minimum about this world. And yeah. we are in, we are out. Right. Like like the problem that we're facing in a in a one shot is not intricately tied to some deep secret in the setting. Right. Like if I'm playing a one shot of a Call of Cthulhu game, then some weird shit with monsters and like weird like stuff is going to happen. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like, I don't need you to know like any I don't need you to know like 10 stories from that, you know, from um, from that genre or anything like that. Like you washed up at a lighthouse and there's some weird ass fish people thing going on. Yeah, that's really all you need to that's know. That's the whole setting. <laughs> It's 1920 something. 
you're somewhere in New England. It's a weird ass lighthouse and there's some fish people lurking in the shadows. Boom. Go. We're off and running. Yeah, yes. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, my next thought, which was knocked out of place with my fourth thought. So I'm going to just tell you my fourth thought until the other one, sure. until the other one returns. Comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, never mind. I found the third thought. Okay. Nice. Okay. okay. Third thought is if you're, um, if you're playing a campaign. So if you're playing a one shot, this piece of advice is not applicable for all the reasons we just talked about. Good. But if you're playing a campaign uh, and you, you know, it is fine to create, find whatever, a primer, right? Or assign a small bit of homework for players if it's accessible. Now, I'm not talking about like read volumes of stuff, but if we were going to go play a Star Trek game in um, the Deep Space Nine TNG realm, I would say it's reasonable for me to say to all of you, go watch a couple of Star Trek episodes or, hey, I picked out three or four Star Trek episodes. Go watch these. These are pretty indicative of what the setting is going to be like. Sure. And uh, yeah, and that is pretty reasonable. I was I was looking at a LARP in 2025 that I haven't made a final decision about, um, but it's a Dresden Files LARP. Um, and I think part of the reason that I haven't made a final decision is because I haven't actually read any Dresden files yet. So I don't know how I feel about the setting at all. And it would be whether assigned or not, right? Like they only, they, they are like, you just need a basic understanding of the setting, but it would be, in my opinion, my responsibility to read at minimum the first book and probably the first like two or three, um, for me to feel comfortable walking into a multi-day LARP experience, um, that was based on that, you know, saga. Now, along with this homework thing, the homework doesn't have to be before session one, right? The homework could be um, throughout the campaign. Like, for instance, if we were going to do a, um, if I was, if I was running a Star Trek game and I was going to do a story about the exocomps, I could tell everybody before they went home to go watch that episode. Yeah, and that would be really helpful for for people like me, right? Yep. Where it's like, I have also probably seen a lot of the episodes that you would focus on in a Star Trek game because you narrowed down our watch list to those episodes, I'm very sure. Correct. But I have only seen most Star Trek episodes, not all of them, but I've only seen most of the ones that I've seen once. Correct. And you have seen the vast majority of them Multiple, multiple times, times. Yes. right? So yep. it was in syndication. I watched it a lot. <laughs> right. So like, I don't necessarily remember all of the details because I haven't consumed it yep. um, kind of again and again, which is not yeah. because I don't want to. It's because I'm bad at consuming. No, but also like, it's, media. but also you don't need to like, it's not, a, it's not necessary. Right. But it's easy for me to, as a GM to be like, oh, hey, like we're do, we're going to do the exocomp episode. Hey, everybody go watch quality of life. This is the yeah. season. This is the episode. Quick refresher. And quick Here's, refresher. So that yep. you're, if you remember this episode, awesome. Don't worry about it. If you're like, I don't remember this, then go watch this before yeah. we play next week. Yeah, exactly. So yes. So if you're, um, if that material is accessible, widely accessible, you can assign it out as homework. A little, a little of it, a little of it a little, before the game. 
Yes, begins. this is for funsies. Yep. So like, don't drop, you know, a textbook or a compendium or like Correct. hand someone the Silmarillion and say, read this by next week. I um, assure <laughs> you I will not be playing in your game if you do that. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> the um, fourth thought I had about this is you can, right? There are applications out there that you can pay for, or you can do this, I think, through Google Sites. You can make your own little wiki, right? Mm -hmm. So you could post information that could be stored between games, that could be looked up later, that you could throw up online. So you could be like, oh yeah, this thing happened. Oh, if you want some background for it, I put an article up for you guys. It, you know, obviously this creates a little more um, prep for you, but if you're like super into world building um, and you really want to kind of like show off your world at the same time, there's like a place where you can kind of um, store that info and make it accessible, right? So by making that information accessible now, um, you can convey it to um, to your players. Yeah. The last thought I have on this um, is when you are playing in a game with a setting, your players may not always know something, but your characters might. Yeah. So it is okay when a player, and again, this goes to shared narrative space. Yep. If the player takes an action with their character, that is clearly um, something that somebody who's knowledgeable in that world wouldn't do. Like, for instance, Elminster shows up and says, hello, I'm Elminster. Uh -huh. And the player's like, uh -huh. I shoot like, him with my bow. Yeah. Like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm shooting that guy. Yeah. Right. And then you're like, you're, you know, you, you, you're sitting there like, well, is this person doing it? Is, does the player player know who Elminster is? Because certainly the character has heard the name before. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. So you, yeah. you you can then you can then as the GM hit the pause button and be like, mm -hmm. real quick, as a player or as a character in this world, you know that Elminster is a godlike wizard um, with great power. Unpause. Right. Unpause and then the player you, might be like, oh, still the thing you want to do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, I, I, I changed my mind. I'm not going to not going to, you know, shoot him with an arrow. That kind of thing. <laughs> not right? going to just like, fire on him. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the very the dick move. Right. The dick move as a GM is punishing your player um, for not knowing um, information that your character would certainly know. Yes. Like. It, it, it is in general a dick move. It's a it's a total dick move um, when it comes to setting. Yes. Right? It's, it's very, very easy to, as a GM, say, oh, by the way, your character absolutely knows that. Like, you know, for instance, um, I don't know, Star Trek again, um, you're out um, with a bunch of Klingons and they crack open a cask of blood wine and they're like, you know, you know, drink with us. And you're like, oh, no, thanks. I don't drink. <laughs> you could be like, you could be like, hey, quick note. You are very aware from your time at Starfleet Academy that like, you know, turning down a drink with Klingons could be considered very insulting mm -hmm. um, and could, you know, disrupt your diplomatic relations at this point. Right. And, and then unpause. Right. And then on your way, because you're right. because your character knows that. And we can't it's impossible for us to embody in our brains everything our character could possibly know about a world that's made up because they're made up too in that world. Right. Yeah. So be be kind and pop in as the GM to um, 
correct that so that the player has a choice. Now, if the player's like, oh, yeah, no, I totally know that. But like, you know, I want to piss these guys off so that when we go to the negotiating table tomorrow, I, you know, can get the jump on them or something. Or, you know, I'm going to rattle them before we, you know, we we negotiate. Okay, fine. Yeah, That's as long an informed as decision. Intentional yeah. and informed decision. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And by all means, you know, refuse them and, you know, live the consequences of this. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. So I guess, I guess I'm out of ideas. You have any more ideas? Um, you know, I don't actually think I do. I think that pretty much covered everything. I was going to bring up from a homebrew perspective, just because we were talking about really powerful people, because you have a series of dead gods that consistently come up in your games. Yes. Um, and I, so the thing I was going to actually bring up is um, in Children of the Shroud. Yes. I will keep this as spoiler free as possible if you are not caught up. Um there is a character called Erlis. She's the queen of Horfrost and woe. And there was a moment where actually um, Jerry mentioned that he'd never, you know, he had kind of the experience of her that I had of her, which is, you know, we like know that she exists, uh, but he had never experienced her in a game before. Um, and uh, she's terrifying. But but the thing that I wanted to bring up is that if you listen to Children of the Shroud, um it, you know, you don't have to know who she is. Bob and Chris obviously do, but you don't have to know who she is because you had these moments of interactions with her that displayed her personality and her power um, kind of to lead to things that I won't say. Um, <laughs> those those dead gods, which were originally created in Sneezak's Dungeon World game, yeah. created by... Um, our pal Tony, some by Chris, and I think some by me and a few others. Um, that pantheon of dead gods, and and all of them are terrible, right? There's no actual good god no in good any ones. of that. Right? Yeah. Um, they're kind of a running theme that we use throughout our own games where we just kind of sprinkle them in. Whenever um, you need a little Elminster in your game, yeah, yeah, you just they're throw like in kind a dead of, god, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and sometimes you don't even see them. Um, actually, if I remember correctly, the little mini adventure that is in the legacy weapon is a temple to Erlis. I think it um, might be. Yeah. So those like we keep them around for fun. Um, <laughs> but they're like but going back to shared narrative space, they are like little shortcuts like tropes and things like that, where when I tell you that this is the in-game embodiment of Erlis, like you already know it's bad. Right, you like, know, she's got in, in um, which Malik call them, cortex words. You're yeah. like, well, I'm assuming she's got scale, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm also assuming that her intentions are probably at best not neutral. good. Neutral. Yes. <laughs> neutral at best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and if she's, and if she suddenly seems very cool with the situation, you should definitely be Terrifying. Worried. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Leave that for those of you who are listening to the current episodes. Of, uh, <laughs> there's a moment where Erla seems very okay with stuff. And you should be worried that she seems very okay with stuff. I'm very worried. <laughs> I'm more worried now than I was. Oy. Okay. All right, let, me, let me put a quick summary on this so sure. we can get ourselves out of here. Let's do it. Okay. So again, things to con the first two things to consider about setting, how ubiquitous is the setting in the zeitgeist of your players, right? Um, how much information is there for this setting? 
for, you know, for people to know about and how accessible is that knowledge, right? That is going to tell you how much work it's going to take to convey a, a base amount of information, right? If it is ubiquitous to your group, easily accessible and fairly voluminous, you'll won't have to do a lot of work to get them up to up to speed to play the game. But if it's extremely um, niche or homemade um, and there's not a lot of, of it existing and there isn't a good way for everybody to get a hold of it, you're going to have to do more work. Although, okay. although also voluminous is its own problem. Right. Voluminous is a problem, but that gets to our first tip, which is yeah. only share how much, how much setting information do people need to know in order right. to play now. this game, <laughs> comma, at this time. Yes. Yes. If you follow that one tip, you are good. Like you will then just extract what you need from the voluminous, um, the obscure, whatever, in order to make sure that you can play this game at this time. Our next tip was pop-up videos, right? You can always share a little extra info, Bloop. right? By doing pop-up <laughs> video. Um, our third one was it never hurts to assign some homework for a campaign. Yes. 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 Not for a one shot, no. just for a campaign. Only campaigns. Um, yeah. And then lastly, you can um, make information more accessible or condense it by creating your own information source. Yep. And then, which also gives you the ability to hone in on what is important for your game. Well, not bad for coming off the cuff, huh? Yeah, not terrible. <laughs> I think we, I think we did all right. Do you remember how to end the show? Um, well, I just did the summary. So now we do the blurb. Yep. Cool. Cool. Do the blurb. All right. So on the gnome cast, several gnomes from gnomes Stew get together and talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew. Although there is some conversation about maybe moving the stew pot so that it's not just like right there to make it a little bit more difficult to throw gnomes in the stew. But I don't know if we've gotten there yet. It's the participation trophy of <laughs> <laughs> taking chances with the stew. Yep. Yep. Anyway. I survived um, the stew 2024. I survived the stew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, cool. Hey, Senda, uh, tell me the one place on the internet where people can find information about us. Yeah, you can go to misdirectedmark.com slash panda and that page has all the different places you can find us on all the social medias or how to email us. And Phil, once they get to that and find one of those contact means, what can they do with that information? Sure. Just like Tiffany, send us a question, a comment, a little story, a topic, something that you would like us to shed some insight on um, so that we can help you make your games more better fun. Um, it's pretty simple. The more fun you're having playing the game, the more you're going to want to play it, the more your players are going to want to play it, and the more you're going to enjoy the great benefits of being in this hobby. So we want you to be in this hobby and we want to make it easier for you. So... Send us those ideas and we will put our decades of knowledge in many facets of GMing, game design, GM advice, etc. Um, to work for you. If you like what we do here elsewhere on the Misdirected Mark Network, consider supporting our Patreon campaign. Go to patreon.com slash MMP. Patrons get access to the Slack Room for Life. You can come join us on our Friday calls if you're up for a little chaos. Um, 
You can chat in the Slack room channels with all of the fine folks um, who are listening to the show, as well as uh, you can get a hold of the hosts and things like that. We're there. Um, and then you can get access to other materials like some of our design docs, um, our setting docs for Children of the Shroud and things like that. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool, cool. Cool stuff. Um, if you're... If you're supporting our Patreon campaign, thank you very much. If you're unable to support our Patreon campaign, not a problem. Um, There's a thing you can still do that helps us that doesn't cost anything other than a little bit of your precious time. And we do appreciate your precious time. But what is that thing, Senda? Well, you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Or you can, on whatever social media you hang out on these days, um... Let someone know that you like the show when they're looking for RPG podcasts. We know that a lot of you are specifically the beneficiaries of this exact thing where someone said, have you heard of Pandas Talking Games? And you went, huh, and you went and you listened to us and you liked us. And, and we see like where you, you are now. We like you too. That's really what it comes down to. So thanks so much to everybody who has done any of those things. We really appreciate you. And thanks to everybody who's going to in the future. Indeed. Cool, cool. Hey, Senda, have I told you about my dead world idea yet? Yeah, actually you have. Speaking of dead gods. Good enough. (laughs) Let's get back in and uh, I'll tell you some more stuff about it. This show is a joint production of She's a Super Geek and Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Clicky. Hello. Hello. Hello there. All right. Well, hello there. You're on a time crunch, and uh, I'm a little uncomfortable. Uh, pain-wise, so why don't we just um, move along nicely? Yes. Okay. We need to do some Ryan stuff, and Ryan, we don't know if the snow hitting Phil's window is going to pick up, but I don't hear it, so I feel like it's not. Yeah, I, it's far enough away. It's like two and a half, three feet away that usually my mic doesn't pick up those things, so mm-hmm. should be okay. Should be okay. Okay. On to count. Bloop! <laughs> doot, doot. I'm gonna take a quick drink and then we'll jump in. Bloop. That's the wrong song. No, yeah. Yeah, because show me what you got. 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 That's the one I meant. Yeah, me too. I got us off on the wrong foot yeah, there. Yeah, you did the wrong one and I just followed. You just I'm followed like a, me. Like a lemming just right <laughs> off the... <laughs>